Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And we like to revisit movies that one or both of us have seen before and, uh, you know, see how they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Disaster. How are you, Dan? How's your week been? My week's been good. As as you know, I make a living in church land, and so it was a busy week. Things went pretty smoothly. It's taken me four years at this church to come up with um, some Easter programming that isn't the most creative necessarily, but it works. How are good. you? How was I'm your well. Week? Good. It was very lovely. Traveled, family, friends, things like that, and had a lovely time away, good holiday, and... Did you get everything you wanted for Good Friday? I did. <laughs> I did. I got a healthy dose of uh, blood-related folklore and shame. <laughs> oh. No, everything was fine. It was very pleasant. And uh, it was just an intentionally different kind of Easter for us. We just, uh, you know, we like family holidays. We just have been kind of exclusively hosting the big ones for several years. And we decided to kind of sidestep this year, do something different. What better Freshen way? Up. Than to yeah. take a trip. Yeah. Did you see anything you did this week? <laughs> you did it. You got I me. Did it. Um, I did. I saw two theatrical presentations of motion pictures. Tell me about one of them. One of them was Rift Tracks Live Octoman. Uh, Rift Tracks is near and dear to my heart. Formerly a contributing writer, lifelong fan of Mystery Science Theater and all that fun stuff that they do. And they found this real turkey of a octopus monster man movie real bad, but they made it a lot of fun to watch. Nice and short and sweet and fun and always a treat because the theater is always packed with like-minded people who enjoy that kind of buffoonery. I feel like you were getting a little testy about something pre-show and then something afterwards. Am I wrong about that? That, I mean, that could describe all in my <laughs> Yeah, I guess probably it was that there is a tradition with the Rift Treks broadcasts of a half an hour pre-show and jokes and things like that. And AMC rarely shows that entire pre-show. And so it was just kind of the typical having, you know, three different people having to complain before they actually turn. Because it's a live broadcast. They're performing in Nashville in a the theater and they're using the Fathom Events platform to broadcast, you know, to theaters around the country so the nice thing about that is they start right on time and there's no trailers and things eating into the showtime but for some reason the amc can just never get it right as to when to flip the switch Mm. and And afterwards i don't know was it the letterbox thing that i was i think that might be it so the day of the show i looked i searched for rift tracks live octoman on letterboxd and it was there and i kind of just you know pinned it to write my review later And then when I went back, it was gone. And I thought that was weird. And then the more I thought about it, I realized, oh, this is probably a snob thing. And sure enough, it was. I found a thread dating back to 2013 where not not the people who run Letterboxd itself, but the people who run the movie DB on which it's built. So Letterboxd is like the interface and the social media Mm -hmm. stuff. But then there's actually a database, a really good database of movies that they, you know, they use and found some of those mods um just kind of snootily talking about how riff tracks can't be considered original material so they don't make it into the database and they th- these administrators actively remove anything anybody adds with the riff tracks title 
Hmm. Dan, did you see anything? Yeah, I went to after. Can oh, you, you did. It? That's yes. right. You chose after. I did. So, I mean, I don't know what I expected. Tessa mm-hmm. is a loyal girlfriend, a dedicated student, a dutiful daughter. The synopsis promised, and it delivered on that. And then there was this young stranger who comes into her life when she comes to college and changes everything she thought she knew about the world. I mean, it was pretty standard. She has a boyfriend who's in high school, but he's kind of controlling of her and his sweetness. Mm -hmm. You know, she goes to a party and she doesn't want to drink or anything because she has to go study, but they kind of pressure her and she kind of rolls her eyes and takes like the tiniest sip of someone's glass and then leaves the party. You know, she's just fed up with these people. And she calls her boyfriend and he can hear bits of the party in the background. He's like, what are you doing? Are you at a party? Have you been drinking? (laughs) You know, she was like, it's not what you think. (laughs) And then he kind of yells at her. And then like later he's trying to text her overnight. I'm just thinking of you. I want what's best for you. That's why I'm doing this for your own good. And the movie's presenting it as if he's being a good friend or Mm -hmm. boyfriend to her. But that's kind of dumb. Like he didn't hear her side of anything. And then it's the classic, well, someone was dared to try to get someone to fall in love, but then they actually fall in love. Oh, boy. And then it gets found out. I couldn't tell the characters apart one from another. Um, Two girls I thought were one character until a crucial scene when there were two of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't understand. shouting at the projectionist. (laughs) (laughs) Why, like, one was being so sour and the other nice? I thought they had, like, a personality disorder, but (laughs) really it was two characters. Oh, man. Um, It was pretty entertaining. Um, Selma Blair plays this girl's mother, and I didn't recognize her at all till the credits. Mm. I couldn't believe it. I thought, this woman looks too young to have a daughter of this age. And in fairness, I would think Selma Blair is maybe maybe pushing it. She's just old enough to have a 19-year-old, perhaps. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know how old she really is. I just think that me and her are probably about the same age. Yeah. Because we were in high, she was in high school movies when I was in high school. So probably she's got 10 years on me. Right. Right. <laughs> so, well, and there's like a lot of philosophical blather. You know, this yeah. boy wants to teach her about the world and he's really angry and she's just supposed to put up with his anger and his outbursts. And he, he takes her to his favorite swimming spot and challenges her to jump in the water with him. And she does. And then he like brings her under the water and kind of holds her there for a second. And she, you know, bobs her head back up. And he's like, did you hear that? What? Silence. And that's like a profound moment that he showed her that you can silence the world. He doesn't drink until he does because he's really upset that his dad is getting married to this other boy's mom, who the girl coincidentally has befriended. Uh, Peter Gallagher and Jennifer Beals, no less, is this wow. couple. And, and so there's drama when the parents get married and he resents his dad for leaving his mom in a bad situation. So Peter he, Gallagher is making time with Jennifer Beals in the cinema, but Jane Fonda on Netflix. Interesting. He's He's got quite a life, that guy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's exactly what it puts itself forth to be. And it's probably exactly what I was looking to watch because you just stare at the screen with right. incredulity at every 
wrong choice that they make, and there are many. It sounds like YA title number 634. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I give it five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. I'm glad that worked out. I enjoyed my time in the theater, and that's what you hope for when you go to a movie. It sure is. I am so low energy today. That's all right. It's a chill, it's a chill laid back episode. I bet you'll come to life when we discuss our movie for the week. <laughs> we'll see. I it, it left me kind of like in a, in a crying ball of depression. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember how depressing the ending was. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. Um, I Can saw Missing s- Link. Can I talk oh, about that? Oh yeah. I need to hear about Missing Link. All right. Missing Link is a charming and delightful bundle of beautiful artistry, fun voice work, storytelling, adventuring, swashbuckling. I really enjoyed it. I also am just really pulling for the studio, the Leica, this uh, stop-motion animation studio. They've not been doing it. They did a little better on their second weekend than the first weekend, so I'm hoping that I, with every one of their movies, you hope that it it's successful enough to finance the next one. So uh, I recommend it. It's colorful. It's delightful. It's good. Well, maybe I'll go to it. We're going to take a break. and When we come back, we're going to talk about Far From Heaven. Welcome back. It's Josh and Dan. Dan, this week's movie was your selection, so why don't you introduce us to Far From Heaven? I will. Far From Heaven is a 2002 movie by director Todd Haynes, starring Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid and Dennis Haysbert. And when I first saw this movie, it was part of a double feature day in Manhattan, where we saw Far From Heaven in the afternoon, and then we saw Chicago that night. As oh, wow. kind of our big, this these are the good, these are some of the good movies of the year personal film festival. Yeah. And I really liked Far From Heaven. And so when I found it in a discount bin at Circuit City of Palisade Center, mm-hmm. I went ahead and I picked that right up for myself and I kept it in the wrapping and I never watched it and it survived what, five or six moves through the years. Wow. And now it's the big moment. And so I pulled it out and I unwrapped it, opened it up, and then remembered that I don't have a DVD player anymore. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> and so I streamed it on on Redbox, which for me is the right kind of streaming service. It's oh, not promoted, yeah. not promoted, but I just like it. Right. Something I don't like about Redbox, though, is that when you pay to stream a movie, they send you a, a freebie from the box itself. So you think you're getting a promo code for your next thing you want to watch on your TV, but nope. Oh, interesting. You can only use it in the box. I love Redbox. I just forget it exists. Yeah, it does. I see it in places that I then forget where it was that I saw it, but I have in mind that they're all over. Anyway, I've lost focus. So it is highly stylized 1950s Hollywood melodrama. Lots of great color, a sweeping score by Elmer Bernstein. The score is one of my favorite parts of this movie. Yeah. And uh, Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid are a married couple, Kathy and Frank Whitaker, who 
are at the top of a corporate and social game. And throughout the action of the movie, it becomes clear that he is gay and having internal torment about this. Uh, Meanwhile, she doesn't have anyone in her world that she can reach out to. And she befriends her gardener, played by Haysbert, who's a black man, obviously, at a time where their friendship is frowned upon. And tragedy ensues. Yeah. Now, Josh, this was your first time seeing this movie. My first viewing, yeah. I knew that this was a movie that existed with big awards buzz for Julianne Moore. Uh, No wins, I see, looking back. That's kind of surprising now that I've enjoyed the movie. But yeah, I went in completely... Uh, I did a little bit of reading ahead just to know that it was, you know, a highly stylized movie and also that it's apparently a very specific homage to a a particular filmmaker, Douglas Sirk, who worked in the 50s and 60s and uh, maybe even earlier than that, actually. I think he goes way back. But uh, two of his movies in particular, one called All That Heaven Allows, from which the kind of marital strife element comes from, and then another one called, I think, Imitation of Life where the the elements involving the black maid and and gardener and and the class differences and that stuff comes from. Huh. Yeah. When I was looking at that trailer you sent of his kind of retrospective, it definitely looks to be an homage to him. Yeah. And if I had had more time, if this was a more normal week, I probably would have tried to stream at least one of those other movies. Um, But I just watched a few clips here and there. I really appreciated just right up front the style of this movie. I was trying to place this is post O Brother, right? And um, I think so. Just, that might just be, seem slightly. arbitrary, but the Tell reason I ask is that the the color timing, the ability to ramp up and saturate the colors and kind of recreate that Technicolor look. You know, a lot of things changed after O Brother. Where art thou? When um, digital color timing became kind of a uh, it was let out of the out of the box and people started to go crazy with it but i love the way it looked and also just as a movie i liked that it was playing off of this particular bygone style this very it was paying homage and it was building a kind of a, a new story on these affectations but not ironically i think that's what i quickly realized unlike something like pleasantville uh, and I had another example in, in mind, but I guess something like, uh, well, Suburbicon, the the Coen brothers written Matt Damon vehicle, which was terrible. I don't know if we've talked about that movie before. It, it's a movie that plays on 50s movie tropes by injecting them with modern themes in a way that's meant to subvert and be ironic. But I did not feel that way about Far From Heaven. It felt no. like he was making his own Douglas Cirque movie and maybe the content could be updated and could talk about things that those films couldn't talk about, but he wanted to do an honest to goodness treatment of those things within that world. It seemed to me like the content of the conflict, I don't want to say it's inconsequential because these are serious issues that the film brings up at the same time. There's something of mood that Haynes is trying to strike that you need a conflict to propel that and so these are the two conflicts that we've chosen to make this melodrama work and it's the style um of the melodrama that's the point to me yeah i think moore's never been better like she's always great but this is probably my favorite performance because she brings something of a 
of a contrived Donna readiness to it, but somehow it seems natural. Mm -hmm. And then as her world starts to fall apart and she's able to be more honest and it just comes out in fits and starts, you know, through a sob or in a small yell, uh, there's such a, a power to, to her performance. Yeah. And it's really quite masterful. I I do not know how she was not more of a player in that awards race. She was nominated all along the way. Yeah. But uh, Nicole Kidman and Renee Zellweger dominated the awards that year. I guess if you look at the movie superficially and you look at her performance from from too far away, you might think that she's just that they're just doing this kind of histrionic 50s pastiche when, yeah, she's walking a really fine line of acting in that style while still being an incredibly deep uh, character, um, it, yeah, it's an amazing performance. And contrasted with something like Gloria Bell just this year, where she's doing something very grounded and modern and, you know, quote, real, she's remarkable in her range. I was reminded how good Quaid was in this, too. I, yeah. I didn't quite remember that, but I thought that could have been overblown or too dramatic i felt like he played it just right throughout yeah and it was interesting how the portrayal of the black characters the uh viola davis and um Haysbert, did not i don't know what i'm trying to say they were i'm not taken out of it by how modern they are they don't seem anachronistic and they don't belong there but they also don't seem like they're indulging in kind of tropes or stereotypes either they they come across as real people they do and I'm not sure what the film is trying to say on on matters of race. There's this idea that they're just as ostracized by the black community as by white people, as if, oh, there's racism on both sides. And I think that's kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing. You know, when she is not welcome really in that restaurant, it's not yeah. because black people just hate white people because of who they are. It's they hate white supremacy and yeah. they hate what she represents. And they have real reasons not to trust her being there. Right. And they have a space where they are in charge and living life on their own terms. And why are you bringing whiteness into this space? That's a whole other thing than 400 years of race-based enslavement and yeah. Jim Crow and, you know, we're pre-civil rights in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I understand emotionally in her situation why she would be drawn to him, but it's exactly the power imbalance that she's making use of that draws her to him and makes him safe to her. Right. Because like both she, both he and Viola Davis, because they are her servants, they see her world a little bit more closely and she can't hide her crises from them like she can to her social circles. Mm -hmm. So they're very safe because they don't have any power to tell on her or to humiliate her or make her life any worse. And so she's really using the power that she has over them for them to act sort of as a therapist to her. Yeah. And that isn't a relationship on equal footing. However, much as it regards uh, Dennis Haysbert's character that she might wish it did. So I want to get, I want to talk about the ending. I don't know if it's too early to do that, but I want to talk about how I came away thinking about the ending and then what I kind of realized later on. Go for it. 
All right. Um, so I, I finished the movie and I was like, okay, wow, that was uh, interesting. It was beautifully done. Acting was tremendous. And then it ended tragically as I kind of figured it had to. And I came away thinking, okay, so really it's about two people who can't be themselves in this uppity world. Uh, and they, they're both made miserable. But then I thought about it more later and I thought, well, no, not really. I thought it's really about two people who can't be themselves until one of them figures out a way. And really it's the tragedy falls mostly on her at the end. It's about a woman who, I, and I don't know that the movie wants to say anything politically about this. I'm just saying in, in the, the, the mechanics of this story, her husband, who's pretty awful to her, but it, he's acting out of things that are dissident, dissonant and, and, you know, misaligned inside of himself. He actually finds a way he has to escape and he has to go live this, this dangerous new life, but he gets to be himself to that degree. Whereas there is no such, uh, path for her. Yeah, I think I can. So we're obviously following Kathy throughout. This yeah. is, this is her story and everything else is peripheral to it because whatever's happening with Frank, we're not shown. We get snippets as it relates to him giving her a call, and we see that he's, you know, in a motel room with this guy, apparently going to start a new life. We don't know what that means, or where, or how that will look. I, I don't think that he has smooth sailing ahead of him, not no. in that world, not not in the least. I think that his life will probably be pretty tragic. I don't think that he will get off that train of uh, too much alcohol and personal frustration. However, as it concerns her, she is going to have alimony and child support coming her way, probably staying in her house. She'll be ostracized by her community on a couple levels. Um, but that's all. Hmm. And that sort of social marginalization sucks, but it's not the same as, say, what happened to Raymond, who had uh, violence done to his house and his daughter is attacked and he has to move because of what happened. Right, right. So in a sense, her world fell apart. Her husband had to leave because of who he was. And this relationship that she wouldn't even admit to herself, she wouldn't even be open about it with her friend or honest about how she felt toward him. Mm -hmm. He has to leave town because of threats against him. What really happened to her in the end? Yeah. And the answer is nothing like emotional mm -hmm. upheaval, mm -hmm. but she mostly keeps the life that she has and this too will pass and her life will continue. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the movie kind of takes us on this journey of feeling for her as we should. I mean, th these are terrible things to have happen compared though to uh, what's going to happen to other characters. She's not the most tragic figure, I guess is my point. Hmm. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. What was it like for you? Uh, what was your journey watching this regarding specifically uh, Dennis Quaid's character back then versus now? I'd ask how so, but um, I don't know how I felt back then. I think that was even before marriage number one. It would have been in 2002. So yeah, before that. And I think that in a twisted way, I would have been drawn to his character in sort of like a, a, in an erotic sort of way of watching some fantasy for myself play out in what he was doing. 
and at the same time, probably judging him pretty harshly. And I think too, um, watching it so many years later kind of shows some of my own relational maturity because I don't tend to be the best at communicating either, just as their family wasn't. And watching it this time, I'm, I think I had a lot more sympathy for her character. Not that I didn't the first time, Mm -hmm. but recognizing how she was just bending over backwards to make that impossible marriage work. And she was deferring to him and putting up with a lot of abuse. And she felt that was her duty. Hmm. And I, I feel like that went right over my head when I'm watching this in 2002. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh wow. She's, (laughs) she's meeting him way more than halfway trying to make this work. I think I would have, um, I don't know how, how, if I would have judged him for not sticking around or if I felt jealous of him for being his authentic self in the end, mm-hmm. this was before I would have my own experience of withdrawing and being angry in insane ways. If you don't understand what's going on in my head and drinking way too much. And, you know, so I, I've now lived what his character is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't, I hadn't yet then. So I was in my, I was in my free pre Frank period. Hmm. Uh, And I'm sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot like that. That was, Oh, I don't, Ooh, I, this this has all been out way in public (laughs) in so many horrible violating ways. But you know, I Um, don't want, you know, I don't don't want to give you the impression that that's your role on the podcast or anything. I just, It kind of is, and I'm okay with it. And clearly I chose this one to try to be a female forward and queer forward and and bring that. And I I don't don't feel like a severe identification with this movie because it was also about a mixed orientation marriage that I have personal experience with. Hmm. I I think that that makes, there's a little bit of relatability in it for me. Yeah. I love the look of it. I love the the 1950s melodrama of it. Mm-hmm. I think the acting is just stellar. Yeah. And I think I took away this time just how crushing that world is. Right. Yeah. I was reading something about um what some people are so resentful about these days. And there was a time when you used to get rewarded both for conformity as well as for punishing people who didn't conform. Hmm. There was a reward for both of those things. And now that's been turned around. You're celebrated if you don't conform. And if you try to judge or punish anyone who doesn't conform, then you're a monster. And people feel really resentful of that because I used to get a reward for telling people who they needed to be and putting them down if they didn't Hmm. conform to what I said. Mm -hmm. And I just see a lot of that in the world of this movie. How how crushing from every, every angle. Despite the fact that my own comments have been kind of overly uh, interested in the movie's themes and the issues, quote unquote, I actually ultimately, I don't think this is a movie with a lot to say about those issues. I think this is an exercise in filmmaking and melodrama, and it just uses those things to achieve, you know, a big, good story. Yeah, there was no language in those days for queer sexuality. You look at the when he goes into that gay bar, no one has anything to say to one another. 
it's it's a silent world and i feel the film is silent on those themes as well you watch a a couple encounters transpire and he feels that he's going to start a new life with this person i don't think that's going to end well yeah um this person that you met at a vacation spot Mm -hmm. in another state right what what do you have in common Mm -hmm. he's 10 years younger at least that you had a, a hot encounter and that that's what that's what you share but it's also it was also interesting the way earlier in the film when he was kind of prowling and you know full on dutch angles and noir lighting and all that mm-hmm. stuff yeah. it treated it like he was on sun- it it the filmmaking would almost in an old fashioned way seem to be judging him but you'd expect a modern movie to then assure you that it was not and it didn't it just played it out oh. kind of with a very with a confidence of style and not needing to give any kind of uh, commentary on its own themes in that way. Yeah, when I noticed the angles too, and I feel like that that era would define something seen through those angles as something twisted or wrong, mm-hmm. as I feel like the movie probably did in its regarding its 1950s point of view. Yeah, I'm not sure what it had to say about race. I felt. <laughs> Um, more sensitive to that today, certainly than I would have in O two. Yeah, I feel like the black characters were props in a lot of ways. Yeah, and they're acceptable in white land as long as they're serving us. Right. And Kathy can talk about wanting a more integrated society, and, and hey, any more any higher level of integration would still be not very much in that community. Yeah. But what do you like? You like this man who, by the standards of white supremacy, is gentle and well-spoken and well-educated and personally put together, and he cares for his daughter, and he runs his own business, and that's the kind of black man you can find acceptable. And she's kind of like, you know what I'm saying? And Yeah. Are you saying that it runs up against dangerously close to the kind of magical black man kind of a trope where the black characters are impossibly wise and they're just there, or is that maybe fully intentional because that's in the way that you say that they're props in the story. Is that the fault of the filmmaker or is that the choice of the filmmaker? I think that could be a choice of the filmmaker. I'm not sure if it would have been back then if to see it today, to me, it would be an intentional choice. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what sort of world she wants, because I don't know that she would want you know, to do the work of racial justice is a whole other thing than what Kathy's attempting here. I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't want reparations. She wouldn't want to pay the uh, African-American community to be able to have the opportunity and the access and um, make things right from the past. I don't think that she would want to do that. I feel like her brand of integration is... I'll be very nice and I don't want any bad to happen, anything bad to happen to black people. So I must not be a racist. Yeah. And I think that she can't escape that. And she's just a very sad and lonely person who was able to confide and not even really Hmm. in this man who she paid to do work for her. Cause otherwise she wouldn't have known him their entire relationship is rooted in the fact that he had to serve her. Yeah. 
So the, there's a chance you think that her infatuation is just a outcropping of her grasping for something to give her, to prop herself up on, give her meaning, make her feel noble. I think so. And so to me, for the film to kind of try to portray her as a secular saint regarding race relations, mm-hmm. I think wasn't due all right, Dan. Well, before we wrap up, let's talk about the reception uh, of this movie. Looking now around the internet to read up on this movie, it seems to be universally beloved. Yeah, I think it was, and it wasn't that it uh, wasn't beloved at the time. I think it had a following. I think that if it were in the current era, that it definitely would have been a Best Picture nominee um, if it were five to ten instead of just five. Mm-hmm which might have even helped Moore's campaign a little bit. I'd have to go back and watch the hours again. I think that Nicole Kidman had a good performance, but to me, they just weren't in the same league. Yeah. That's another one that I need to revisit. That's another one of my, uh, I'm looking at the Oscar winners from that year and I must've watched it because I recognize best animated short film, the chub chubs. That's not easily forgettable. I would only know that if I actually, I didn't see the film, so I must've seen it when, uh, the award yeah but oscar nods for more and score which is wonderful score and screenplay which is a little bit of a surprise and cinematography which is not a surprise yeah no wins no i think this would be the kind of movie that would get even just the token win to get it in the mix yeah it was i would say it was even below second tier hmm. that year when it came to awards recognition she kind of swept the critics awards early on and she really seemed like the one to beat. And then come golden globes, it was not going to be her. They swept those independent spirit awards. Oh, they sure did. Ebert loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't make one of my great movies, but it would, it's up there Yeah, with, uh, as one that I enjoy quite a bit. Yeah. I'm glad I saw it. It's, um, beautiful to look at. Great performances. Yeah, it's more it's more style than substance looking back. Yeah. But it's not I guess for me because it's it's weirdly restrained in that sense. I mean, it's not in the style of the performances and the almost cartoonish way they recreate the Technicolor look. But at, what I was trying to articulate earlier about how it doesn't flip over into parody or or irony. Mm-mm, not at all. So I, I kind of really admire that how it's it's restrained in that sense even though but again, I don't want to fault it for not having a lot to say because I think that might be one of its strengths is that it's just trying to tell a melodramatic story. Um, and I think it maybe uses more contemporary themes, say of sexuality and race, not like those are new themes, but we they're more in the public discourse today than they were back then, Yeah, particularly in movies, and inserting them into a well-worn style is I think what Haynes might've been going for. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure as always. I think I brought it back in you the did. second segment. <laughs> I I sat up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Instead of laying on the floor. Do you have a preview for us of your choice for next week? I don't because I don't have a choice. I'm narrowing it down. Mm-hmm. I want to try and... Th- I don't want to just do like old favorites every time. I want to do like... No. So I'm trying to think of, and also I don't want to, we're in like, we're kind of like glued to the early 2000s. So I'm trying to. Look, oh, so you want to step out of that I'm a little trying bit. Trying to shake us free a little bit. 
Okay. Um, I'll let you know real soon. I'll wait with bated breath. This has been our podcast. Uh, we've been Josh and Dan. You can follow us on Twitter individually and at Holds Up Pod. You can follow us both on Letterboxd. Our theme music is by Jonah Rapino. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Wow, that was a disaster. <laughs> but here we are. It's so late in the day. I yeah. feel lethargic. <laughs> I can I'm going to call that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm talking about. Are we in worst episode ever territory? <laughs> I mean, we'll see how it ends up. Yeah. I haven't been to the gym in like six months. And then today was the wow. day I went to the gym. I know, and I feel, yeah. It, Cause I, I just am eating and drinking without a care. And I just feel heavy and lethargic. I thought maybe this would help. Maybe wow. it will in the long, in the long run. Good on you. I've been doing intermittent fasting. Oh, which basically means skipping breakfast, but uh, yeah. It's my everyday. Mm. Goes against common wisdom. I know. Breakfast. So much of my life does. <laughs> sure. <laughs>